0: Hello, welcome to a special edition of the Oxford Research Group podcast, where we look back at the history of ORG. I'm Alison Klein, Senior Editor at Oxford Research Group, and I'm joined by Abigail Watson, Conflict and Security Policy Coordinator at Saferworld. In this special series of podcasts, we interview people who have been involved in the development and evolution of ORG from its early days. In this episode, we'll be joined by Professor Oliver Ramsbottom, Emeritus Professor at Bradford University and a Senior Advisor to Oxford Research Group's Strategic Peacebuilding Programme. We discuss Professor Ramsbottom's work with Ology, particularly his role in developing collective strategic thinking, an approach that has been heavily influential in the work of the Strategic Peacebuilding Programme in both Yemen and Israel-Palestine. Enjoy the show. So Professor Oliver Ramsbottom, thanks very much for joining us here. As somebody who's been involved extensively in ORG's work for the past several decades, in various forms, one way or another, how did you get involved in ORG and what were you doing before you joined ORG?
1: I'll confine my answer to the period immediately before I joined ORG because I think that explains how I came to be part of the organisation. So we're talking now about a long time ago, which is the mid-1980s, a very different world to the world we're in now. Um, Now, what I was doing at that time, I'd published a book called Choices, Nuclear and Non-Nuclear Defense Options, which was about the nuclear deterrent debate, which was raging at the time. Seems very out of date now, but that's what was going on. And this was actually my first real study of the phenomenon of radical disagreement. This was a highly complex public debate, which ranged across strategic issues, political issues, and very much moral issues. The church was involved, etc. It was an international debate, of course, and it was very difficult for the general public to get their head around it. There was CND on one side, etc. We can remember about that period. And uh, my book was a series, it was based on a series of interviews with some of the main participants, not only in the UK but abroad. Um, and it was trying to analyse the debate and develop it. So instead of sound bites, you've got actually people responding to what somebody else had said and developing what the actual issues were in a way accessible to the public. So. I think there are shades of brexit here and there was the same mark lack of capacity for informed public debate it's very hard to do it with complex issues and the nuclear issue this is the link up with org was that these decisions were extremely secretive this is you know the nuclear issue was one of the heart of government protected by all the secrecy acts etc so it's very hard to know what was actually going on so that's the book I published just at that time, which I think is enough to give you the background for how I linked up with ORG.
2: Thank you. That's really interesting. And I think we'll come on to some of those things around radical disagreement and nuclear deterrence as we, as we move through the chronologi- chronology of your process through ORG. But can you just briefly tell us how you found out about ORG, what attracted you to it and how you became more involved?
1: Well. It was a natural fit. So having produced this book I've just told you about, here was ORG researching at that time that the focal point of the research, very much Scylla's work and some others. I won't keep mentioning names um, simply because it would uh, complicate things. Um, anyway, the ORG was researching how nuclear weapon decisions are made in each of the five permanent member nuclear states, uh, extremely important study, and secondly, trying to put members of the public in touch with decision makers, it was a very original conception. Now, you can see how attractive that was to me, having just written my book. In a way, I was trying to do the same thing. I was trying to interview these decision makers uh, and then present something to enhance the public debate. At that time when I joined ORG which was based in Oxford and it was it was a lovely group to join and I was very fortunate to be welcomed into the group and almost straight away I was asked if would I write a book on modernizing NATO's nuclear weapons so I plunged right in and wrote that book and a second book which gives a good idea of where some of the focal points were at that period was with Hugh Mile and we wrote a book comparing the British defence debate with the West German defence debate. Absolutely fascinating. And that was to do with alternative defence. And a lot of creative thinking was going on in Germany, more than in this country, because of the situation of Germany. Obviously divided them with East Germans and West Germans trying to overcome this division in their country and get over these two great blocs, NATO and the Warsaw Treaty Organisation, the Warsaw Pact which were in an arms race. So you can see how, from that beginning, the issues considered by ORG got broader and broader. And there were others like Paul Rogers involved at the time and Scylla herself, of course.
2: I also quickly want to jump in and ask, there there seems to be, um we can hear more about this on the podcast with Scylla as well, where she talks about some of the conversations that she tried to set up with people. Yes. And um decision makers when it came to nuclear decision making. And I think it's interesting that you note know that your own book, one of the purposes, was to try and make these issues more accessible for the public. It seemed that right from the beginning there was a desire within ORG to sort of democratize what were very secretive processes and decisions that were made nominally in the public good, but then away from public discussion. Do you see that as something that ORG did throughout its history?
1: I do indeed. I I was with ORG at that period, so early on. Then I left to go to Bradford and um, help start the Centre for Conflict Resolution there with Tom Woodhouse. Then years later, I came back again. And I think we'll get on to this later. To my great pleasure, I found, first of all, rejoining ORG. And secondly, that some of the new initiatives, which hadn't been there in the 1980s, also fitted in miraculously with what I was doing. So although ORG has many different projects and they were different at the end to what they were at the beginning, this is a reflection of the world in
0: which ORG found itself. You've it talked about the idea that ORG's work has become much broader over the years and this has been moved from not simply focus on things like nuclear deterrence and the transparency around that, but also areas such as peace building and also things as diverse as more environmental issues with the sustainable security program and how that relates to human insecurity. But as somebody who's been involved in ORG in varying degrees over the past several decades, what do you think are the common threads that bind all of this work together?
1: Let me repeat that we must remember that the world changed between the early 1980s and 2020 uh, dramatically. Unexpectedly, You think of the things that happened, you know, beginning at the height of the so-called Second Cold War, the, United, the Soviet Union had taken over in Afghanistan, the Iranian Revolution and all that. Then you go through Gorbachev and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Unbelievable. And then the early 1990s, apparently the UN able to do all sorts of things it hadn't done. Then the disasters of the mid-90s and on you go, on you go, on you go to today's world. Now, ORG responded to all that, and therefore, you'll find different projects all part of ORG's portfolio. What are the threads? I think, first of all, we've focused on the first one. I think that ORG throughout has been trying to think creatively about alternatives, to existing power structures and ways of doing things. This is a kind of broad philosophical approach of ORG. Um, at the risk of being grandiose, human beings have only been here a very short time compared with other species, an incredibly short time. We have inherited our bodies and our minds and our emotions and our institutions, they're all historically conditioned. And we face this rapidly changing world in which we find. We are making huge differences. We already were in the 80s. No, ORG was already focused on environmental issues as being linked to conflict and things like this. So the key idea here for ORG was we need these alternative ways of thinking in order to be able to adapt. Because as the environment changes, if you just go on doing the same thing, you come a cropper like so many other empires and species. Uh, So that's the first thing. Now, the second thing is what you've just said, which is that in this work, it's extremely important, ORG felt from the beginning, that it is democratised, that people, particularly the people who are in whose name all of this is done, usually, and who are certainly, they they suffer when things go wrong, um, they are the ones who need a voice and need to participate in this. And the particular, at the beginning, it was to do with, as you, as we all said, Linking members of the general public to decision makers. Um, and that goes on to this day. And the work that Gabrielle Rifkind is doing with the Oxford process is still doing that work. It's very characteristic of ORG. So you put those two together and you begin to get something which is distinct. Now, I think this is again quite broad. Uh, a third strand which goes through it all that in this work, this must, this must be comprehensive and cosmopolitan in other words we're linking together ORG can only do certain projects depends who's there people have to be enthusiastic about that project ORG will then support them and it must fit in with the ethos and aims of ORG but all these projects need to be mutually aware of each other so you're all part of a bigger pattern that's not even being comprehensive and secondly cosmopolitan that from the beginning, O.R.G. was very aware of cultural difference. And I think Scylla, from the beginning, did work with China and other. And that um, the idea of a cosmopolitan framework was very important. Getting over the nationalistic, um, inward-looking world that we've inherited that was not fit for purpose for a lot of the these projects. And finally, I would say... Um, ORG of course is a small organisation so it's linked to lots of other organisations so it's value added and it has done very well I think in spawning and encouraging other, so it's had um, it's had Peace Direct um, which was went on to do it's had um, Iraq Body Count Every Casualty is a wonderful programme which then got its own feed programs, fit into this ethos.
2: Thank you. That's a really, it's a really useful way to conceptualize the, the journey that OIG has gone on and to see those areas of continuity along the way. Halfway through this, this process in, in 2010, you published the Transforming Violent Conflict, Radical Disagreement, Dialogue and Survival which investigates intractable conflicts and explores what can be done when conflict resolution fails and picks up on a lot of these themes that you've already mentioned, such as nationalism and how we see each other. I wonder, especially as conflict resolution feels like an impossible task in many areas of the world today, if you can explain some of your recommendations and what you mean by this radical disagreement.
1: Can I also plug, 2017, I've published a book called When Conflict Resolution Fails, which complements the other book. So that's a little plug. Um, Okay, how can we say this? So within the conflict resolution is my own field, but um, I'm a devil's advocate. For a long time, I've been asking what happens when conflict resolution fails, which is a good question to ask from the point of view of, what we've just been discussing, second-order social learning. It's only by looking at your failure that you can develop and adapt. So it's a good question. It's not an attack on conflict resolution. But clearly, as you've said, conflict resolution does not yet work, I would say, in a number of cases. And this is quite hard to predict. Suddenly, (laughs) windows of opportunity open and close all the time. And what was the worst case, suddenly, becomes the best case, and the best case becomes the worst case. I can give you many examples of that. Um, So now, when conflict resolution fails, in the communicative sphere, let's begin with radical disagreement, what we're faced with is what I call linguistic intractability. That means whatever it is in the linguistic sphere um, that blocks dialogue, that blocks attempts at problem solving, which means going from win-lose, lose-lose, avoid-lose-lose, go to win-win, and, of course, um, negotiation, mediation, diplomacy. Now, when those communicative conflict resolution efforts fail, which they do in the most intractable conflicts, what blocks them? Is radicalistic intractability. It's the chief verbal dimension of our most intense, intractable, usually asymmetric. Now, I'll say one little thing that very often in conflict resolution, in my view, the importance of radical disagreement is played down, it's kind of dismissed as an all too familiar dead end an end of dialogue, something you've got to get over from the beginning and not learn from. And this is a mistake. I think you've got to see what blocks conflict resolution before you can overcome it. And I think it is a form of dialogue. It's the m- most characteristic form of dialogue of intense conflict of this kind. I call it agonistic dialogue, the dialogue of conflict, of struggle. Um, and I don't think it's all too familiar. I think it's truly unfamiliar. <laughs> um, anyway. So that's trying to convey what I mean by radical disagreement. So it lies at the very heart. The war of words lies at the heart of the war of weapons. You—you you can't. They're two sides of the same coin. And if you want to do something about this, um, then you'll have to understand and respond to radical disagreement. So the big question—and in a moment we'll come back to ORG—as I say, to my joy, when I got back to London, I found ORG was brilliantly
0: doing a lot of this kind of thing i think this leads very nicely on to some of the work that's come later and i think going back to sort of fred's associated analogy one of the things that we've noticed talking to people like paul rogers and gabrielle is this idea of not simply identifying problems but also coming up with practical approaches to them and i think there's this term used about what called it not simply a think tank but a think and action tank and it's yeah. about utilizing thinking in a, a more practical setting One of the very exciting things that you've developed recently has been this concept of collective strategic thinking, which has not simply been a theory of how to deal with conflicts or people in in radical disagreement, but also something that's been applied in a context setting. I was wondering if you could maybe talk about how this idea develops and a little bit about what is involved in collective strategic thinking.
1: Well, let's pick up from the last thing I said, So you're faced with this linguistic intractability, which means that the conflicting parties are not ready to do what conflict resolution wants them to do. That's the main problem. They don't think or behave as they're meant to by conflict resolvers. It's just a fact. What do you do about it? So here's the link through to the practice. What you do naturally is you begin not where conflict resolve resolution wants the parties to be, you begin with where they are with their radical disagreement, and you realize you cannot yet try and do some of these things between them, they will not do them. So you start where they are, and the other key move is you begin not between them when they're not ready for that yet, you begin within them and you promote. This is where I say you promote collective strategic thinking. This is thinking within what I call an identity group. Identity group could be Jewish Israelis. It could be Palestinians. It could be Palestinians in Israel. The world is full of overlapping identity groups. I don't know if you'd agree with that, which do not coincide with state borders, one of the main problems in human conflict. So you begin with whatever the um, identity groups are. And people can be members of two different identity groups. But having said that, when you've got your identity group, let's say it's Palestinians, then what the Palestinians are very prepared to do when they're not prepared to do conflict resolution is collective strategic thinking. They recognize, now in an asymmetric conflict, particularly what I call the challengers, in this case the Palestinians, they recognize if they're not If they don't have a capacity, creative capacity for collective strategic thinking and action, other people will make their decisions for them. That's what's happening. They've got to get over their own internal and do collective strategic thinking. Now, funnily enough, it's not well known this, particularly how to do it. And it's one of the things that ORG has pioneered in recent years, I think. And I think it's a significant thing to have pioneered. So what is collective strategic thinking? Well, you have your group. It needs to be collective. It needs to be as inclusive as possible. So in this group, if it's Palestinians, you want the kind of Islamists and the secularists. You want the women and the, you want people from different, you want people from Gaza, from Israel, from the West Bank, from Jerusalem, from the diaspora, people who feel their voices are neglected. And it's very important for Palestinians that there's a forum where they can get together. What do they do? Do they complain about the past and things? No, they don't. They do collective strategic thinking. You can see why they want to do it. Do Israelis want to do collective strategic? Completely different strategic situation. Absolutely, they do. They also want to overcome internal differences. And Israel's an incredibly varied country. People, citizens of Israel, have come from all over the world and created a new country. <laughs> uh, so, speaking Hebrew and things, they want to overcome their internal divisions in order to attain their strategic goals. So this is not conflict resolution at all. So that's why they want to do it. Um, Perhaps I'll say one more thing, and then we might come on to the actual how you do it, which is, why can this nevertheless help to open the way for a revival or initiation of conflict resolution, even in the most tough situations? And the reason is because of the nature, so perhaps we'll come on to this in a moment, of collective strategic thinking. As I say, you're looking at the future, not the past. Where do you want to go? You're acknowledging your own internal differences, which tend to get crowded out when you get two antagonists against each other. And they certainly these internal differences block conflict resolution. One of the main reasons why... A moderate government can't do this is because as it does it, it opens political space behind it, and in come the tough guys. You see this again and again. So Paisley comes in in Northern Ireland. Then he amazingly joined the peace process and became wonderful buddies with Martin McGuinness. That was astonishing. Anyway, perhaps I'll stop at that point and we'll say more about the methodology because there you'll see how the thinking itself opens space. What you then do is, on that basis, you can promote um, strategic engagement across and be- between strategy groups. Either, because you've got moderates as well as extremists, if you like, use that terminology, constituencies on either side often have more in common with each other than they do with other people on their side. This is very, isn't it? So that you get channels of communication. They didn't know about each other before. And the same is true of issues, but I think I'll pause.
2: Thank you. <laughs> That's it's really it's really interesting. And you mentioned Israel-Palestine, which I think is an interesting example because it's one of two case studies, as well as Yemen, that you not only studied but put this collective strategic thinking into practice. It would be great to hear more about what happened when you came back to London. So Oxford Research Group was still going and engage more in applying this collective strategic thinking to countries who are finding that conflict resolution has failed.
1: Thank you. Well, can I first of all say that when I came back to London, I naturally, of course, I'd always been in touch all the way through with ORG and with Scylla and so on. And Scylla was just handing over at that time and doing all her other marvellous enterprises. Anyway, in what was then the Middle East programme, to my joy, as I have said, this is a programme. The director was Gabrielle Rifkind, who you have spoken to. Um, the consultant on Middle East, great expert, was Tony Clug. Um, now, there were other. So I'm not going to start mentioning lots of names because you, you get, you know, it confuses everybody. Um, now, and in London at that time also was Hussam Zumlot, Dr. Hussam Zumlot, who is the, as I think you know, he's an extremely major figure in ORG as well as being a major figure in the world at large, having been the Palestinian representative in Washington and now in London. So he's been, you know, a, a driving force, and behind the work of org i was extremely lucky to find because to my amazement gabriel tony husam and others had already set up first of all an israeli strategic forum for jewish israelis to think through the time is ripe where where is israel going etc 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 and a palestine strategy group to bring together these scattered Palestinians who very difficult for them to get together now this was already done and I was very fortunate that Gabrielle and Tony and Hussam uh, invited me in and we just found off we went so now to come on to your question with the Israeli strategic forum and the Palestine strategy group we can come on to Yemen in a moment and also by the way I'll just mention here over the next period, Refka Abu ramayla took the lead in setting up the Palestinian Citizens of Israel group or Palestinian Community in Israel group and has also taken a lead uh, with colleagues in the Kreisky Forum in Vienna in setting up another original move by ORG, which is the Palestinian diaspora and refugee strategy group these are I think wonderful contributions which aren't there otherwise major contributions to possibilities for peace and settlement which wouldn't be there now the key thing to convey in a very short period of time is the methodology for collective strategic thinking this is what ORG with my colleagues there and above all the people who really did the actual work, who are our Israeli partners and our Palestinian partners and our Yemeni partners, who actually did this collective strategic thinking and invented it. I'd like to stress that each group is entirely different to each other group. Then you, you have your own terminology and so on. This is not a kind of template, which is just put like that. It's, but it does have a methodology, because otherwise people say, how do you do this? So I'd like to say, if I may, perhaps three or four minutes on, give an idea of the methodology, because you'll see, I think, why it is able to create space, conceptual space, strategic space, emotional space, in otherwise situations where you can't do conflict resolution. So let me just very briefly take you through. So, you know, who are we? Here, a group acknowledges the differences within the group. Major differences. Any human group will have huge differences and strategic differences. But the incentive is to overcome those, because if you don't, you won't be able to have a collective strategy at all. But nevertheless, you're aware of internal constituencies. That's very important. They're usually they're much more different than you think. And some of the internal debates within these groups were more impassioned than debates between Israelis and Palestinians. Very important. Let me do three more. Secondly, where are you? Now, particularly if you're the challenger, you want to change the status quo. So you have to understand the status quo as a complex system made up of different factors and different levels. Now, this gives a sophistication. You're doing this with your group, it's something that everybody can do. You don't have to be an expert to do this. Uh, Also, strengths and weaknesses. Relative to what you want to do, you raise questions about different types of power. It becomes much more fine-tuned. Very briefly, you move on to where you want to go. You look at future possibilities. These are called scenarios in classic strategic thinking. Not just where, which ones you like, which ones you don't like, you want to block. But how much leverage have you got? How likely are they? You become realistic. And with your goals, you distinguish short-term, middle-term, long-term goals. You never, in complex cases, go straight to your goal. You have to go in the opposite direction to get... So you start to get this thinking in the groups, fed back into the general debate, and more and more, it's open to people to come in, and you inform decision-makers. I'll say two more things, if I may. How do you get there? Perhaps I'll jump over that, because you can see many different... Ways of looking at that. Let me just say two more things. First of all, what about your opponent? Now, in strategic thinking, everybody agrees each time. Here's the question not do you love your opponent, not do you want to sympathize with your opponent? No. Should you look at the chessboard from the perspective of your opponent? And any strategic player will say yes, not because you love your opponent because otherwise you'll lose. <laughs> so, but even though that's the motive, it's not conflict resolution, you are looking at the chessboard and you're looking at the other. Who are the other? Who are the different? Where can we get a leverage? Where, and finally, you're looking at third parties. Who can help us? Who is blocking us? Who can we put pressure on? And this is quite exciting for groups and empowering that you can do this. And an outsider like ORG can help link These groups, this is especially so in Yemen, to these outsiders. So I've gone on a bit, but I hope that will give an idea of the work ORG is doing. Um, It's exciting work. I think it's full of promise. Uh, Not easy,
0: but fundamentally important. Absolutely. You mentioned Yemen there, and that's obviously one of the other, I suppose you could call it case studies or, or countries or conflicts where there has been this application of the methodology. One of the things that's always very interesting about thinking is how it can be applied to different contexts. In Yemen and Israel and Palestine, many would probably agree that they are very different contexts in terms of the sort of the insecurity there and the conflict there. But applying the methodology to Yemen, how different did you find applying it to that context when compared to Israel and Palestine? And do you plan to develop the methodology a bit further based on the findings in Yemen or... Yes. Is, it, is it sort of something that was easy applicable to that context?
1: Well, this was something which we found very exciting. We never thought of before. And it's sad because the demise of ORG, this is the Yemen programme. This is a programme that has just come to an abrupt end. It was a very, very fine programme. It was funded by the FCO. And I think the FCO is very pleased with this and doubled it a year ago. But it's just can't go on. Not. That I'm very sad about it. Uh, Maaba Babad, who wrote, was the director, would be even more sad. And Alex Scott, who's done such marvelous work here and in um, Israel-Palestine, you know, we're all very sad. And Emily, who conceived a lot of it in the first place. Um, anyway, let me answer your question. What's exciting is that here we apply this to something completely different, and we have worked here. Uh, with the Sana'a Strategy Centre. And virtually everybody working on this programme has been Yemeni, including translators, facilitators. And the Sana'a Centre has done a lot of the work back in Yemen when we couldn't go. You know, you can't go to Yemen. And you've had to, the actual meetings, on the whole, took place in Jordan or elsewhere. Now what's exciting here, let me do it in a nutshell, to show you the, the, the scope of what ORG has been pioneering here, the identity groups were governorates, so Yemen is divided into 21, I think it is governorates, very different to each other, and North Yemen is different to South Yemen, etc, a highly complex society. Um, but these are natural identity groups. in other words, the people in them are very proud of the governorate, and they want they, they think in terms of what's good for the government. Now, we took two governorates. One was Marib, and the other was Hadramaut, and they're very different to each other. And we did this thinking over a two-year period, and then it was renewed, and we took, we had two more for the next period. Uh, it's difficult to express to you how impressive these groups were. In the middle of a war, how generous they were in thinking of refugees. You know, massive numbers. It, it, it Which quite poor people had to kind of share their space with, etc. And the creative thinking. Now there were rows and all sorts of things, because of course within a within one of the groups, you've got tribal leaders, you've got um, political parties, you've got all sorts of, you've got government officials from the governorate, very good governorate, you know, officials there, uh, as well as uh, women's groups, etc., etc., etc. And here's how it fitted in. What they were doing was collective strategic thinking for their government. The, uh, the original thing ORG experimented with, guided by Mawa, was to have two groups at the same time in parallel. So they could they met separately, but they would have plenary sessions. Now these are not opponents, they're just different governorates. They have completely different. So they were trying to solve problems within their governorate. Between governorates, then, if possible, between the governorates, and whenever there's a because there's a recognised government, but of course the the Houthis don't recognise it, and then the region and the international community. And at the end of each of these sessions, it, it was very effective. Um, ORG arranged for the, for internationals. That means the World Bank. Um, UN agencies, EU, to come and a big round table and the two groups would present their strategic analysis and they would refine what do they want from the international community. This is a, you think how powerful this is, this is a group of people across the whole of that who spent three days doing this, they're not used to doing, extremely ably And they have to refine, they have to look at, it's such an empowering thing to do. You have to look at these agents. It's no good making a complaint. We want this. Who are you asking? What are the, you have to look at the reference. What does the World Bank do and doesn't do? And be very specific. You know, would you like to come and visit us in order to do what? And you have to prioritize what you want. So it was very exciting. And the groups learned from each other. and the. UN office, which is playing a major part in trying to get the big talks going at the kind of top level, was saying this is exactly what's needed. If there is a peace, this is the peace building, strategic peace building. If there is to be a peace agreement, you get a ceasefire, okay, the militias do that between them, then you get a peace agreement. Now, at that point, you bring in, you must bring in these other peace building components. So if you, the kind of thing ORG was doing, the collective strategic thinking is invaluable because then you you build the the resulting social cohesion out of this. And my final thing to say is that um, when the original autocrat was overthrown in those Arab revolutions, there was a marvellous attempt really to do national dialogue bringing together all these and it folded it and there are many reasons it didn't do as badly as some people say you didn't have this practice in you had too many little groups doing this, and there's no continuity then they all went off left some papers and it wasn't carried on was what ORG was doing was helping building blocks which are enduring which are real they're based on the governorates. and people get used to trade-offs and all the things that are needed so it's a very exciting program and personally um, I deeply regret that it's a victim at the moment anyway of um, ORG ceasing to trade as it were.
2: Yeah I was just thinking the same thing as you were painting all the incredible work that it's been doing over the last couple of years is such a loss for the conflict resolution field and it's sort of It would be interesting to get your thoughts as we come to the end of the podcast, what you as both a researcher and a practitioner in this space of conflict resolution, how do you feel that the closure of ORG, what space does it leave and how do we as individuals and organisations working in the peace building space make up for this loss?
1: Yes, thank you. I mean, it, it certainly is a loss. And you've got the actual programmes that ORG was doing. And I, I'm going to speak about one of them, which I think can certainly be rescued. I mean, obviously something like, you know, the work someone like Paul Rogers does, or Scylla does, or uh, Gabrielle does, and others, I'm not mentioning all the names, can carry on because they they will do that anyway. The Oxford process Gabrielle is doing, she can. Continue to do and was anyway, well, we won't go into it. A lot of the work in the Middle East was done through some of her uh, places we could meet and so on. Uh, Paul will go on doing what he does. I think the Yemen project, and I'm so sorry if, you know, the, the work of Mawa Badad and also Alex Scott, although he's continuing with the Palestine Israeli work, that, that Yemen work is lost. So individual programs can continue, can't they? So the, the kind of remote warfare will continue and flourish, I'm sure. It's harder to ask, answer a general question. You know, I, I think that the ORG approach, ORG knows it's only a small player. And it's, it's an NGO with lots of other wonderful NGOs doing all this work cumulatively, the work of the NGOs is fundamentally important, often below the radar screen <laughs> and only f- coming into fruition when certain circumstances change. And then all that work, I'm absolutely convinced, comes flooding through and sustain something that wouldn't have been there otherwise. I think it's vital. Um, so I think when you say individuals and organisations can either take on programmes or can... Take on the basic ideas. I mean, I haven't talked to you, Paul and Silla, and I would have talked to you about sustainable security. Uh, See what I mean? So, but in in the field we've been talking about, it's a great loss to the collective strategic thinking program. Although we think, and I I won't say anything because I think it's being discussed, there may be another home for the Palestine-Israeli work, in which ORG's name will continue. And the work ORG has spent all these years pioneering will be retained and will be able to carry on. But at the very beginning, I gave those few indicators of what I thought was distinctive of ORG. So I think if that kind of work goes on, either through individuals or organisations, then it will continue.
0: and, And that's what's very important. Thank you. And I think it's always good to end on a positive note. But I think probably one thing I'd add to that is the fact that because the work and there is an awful lot of written outputs from ORG all the time. And and in the age of the internet as well, it means that, you know, people can continue reading this stuff and it can actually inspire people to read Paul Rogers' material, Silla's material, or your material and think, you know, that sounds like something I want to be involved in. I think, you know, one of the things that we're going to do is obviously this work will be preserved long term. So it will exist in, in one form or another, not just simply through programmes, but also for ideas that are out there. But I think this is one of those conversations as i said with, with the ones that we'd be doing this week, that it's one of those ones that we wish we could go longer, but we have to kind of keep time in mind. Yes, um, sure. But we, before we, we, we depart, is there anything you want to add uh, to the discussion?
1: Um, apart from thanking you both and for giving us this opportunity and doing this work, which is a huge contribution to um, sustaining what ORG has done, <laughs> so it's available, um, I'd like to say one thing. All this work, not just ORG, the work all of us are involved with, including conflict resolution as a whole, just to comment on this. Over, during my time involved in conflict resolution, beginning in the Cold War, depths of the Cold War, nothing could seem more remote <laughs> than the kind of conflict resolution approach to a lot of things um, then you went through this amazing period in the early 90s when the UN was suddenly zooming around the world solving every known you know the UN would move in uh, peace support operation uh, you'd have a snappy election they'd say pass everyone on the head and off they'd go that's the that solved Cambodia we've solved El Salvador on we go and then you hit the rocks to the middle of the 90s I went go on and on and on and then you got You've got the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, before that. Then you've got the period when the US seemed to be the hyperpower, not just a superpower. And you've got Iraq and all those things. And the war on terror and conflict resolution, the threat was conflict resolution would be kind of co-opted into the war on terror. And then you've got the extraordinarily rapid, I would say, waning of relative American power accelerated by Trump pulling out of all these multilateral organizations, which were multipliers of American power, he's pulled out of them. Anyway, so 2008 was kind of the US could no longer financially support everything. The big battle now is that all the things we've been talking about, that in a small way ORG's been doing, but including all these multinational, wonderful multilateral, multinational institutions, that they should not be seen as a simple temporary phase of world history linked to western interests no i come back to the central cosmopolitanism of org they are not they are a stage in the progress of humanity in the interests of all parts of the world they are not just western and that's a battle that has to be won otherwise all this work is marginalized And we're in a much more dangerous, we can see it all around us. I won't go on about it. That is the big battle. So what ORG has played a small part in is not just a Western reflex in the interests of a certain elite in the world. No, that's not what conflict resolution or what either you you both are doing or we've been doing. We have not been doing that. And so that's
0: where I'll end. Thanks very much for joining us. That's fantastic. Okay. And many thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. Oxford Research Group is closing at the end of the year. The Remote Warfare Programme has moved to Safer World under the new name of the Security Policy Change Programme. In the new year, this podcast will also be taken over by Safer World. But for now, you can listen to all previous episodes of our podcast free of charge on the ORG site by following the link at the top of the page. To all our listeners, we wish you a fond farewell from ORG. Goodbye.